Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast, and now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right, you're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, that's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Uh, Ben, even though we had Bellator over the weekend and a PFL event over the weekend, both of which turned in some results that we're going to be talking about a little bit on this week's show, it felt like a week where there wasn't really one big headline or uh, a number of major headlines that could dominate the show. So we decided this week to reach out to the listeners of the co-main event podcast, as we so often do. So we could do an all questions considered episode of the show, kind of a grab bag. If you will, the people send us their listener mail questions. And then we sit here for the next hour or so. And we take those questions on whatever topics happen to be on the minds of all the little co-maniacs out there. However, It strikes me perhaps I've already lied to the people because perhaps there is a headline of note. Okay. And maybe we need to start there this week. And that headline is that you and I did the damn thing on Friday night. We went out to the football stadium and we watched Guns and fucking Roses come out there. I was going to say tear the house down, but I don't know that that's entirely accurate. But we watched them play music for, oh, probably two and a half hours or so. Uh, they played all the songs except for the ones that you can't really say out loud in 2021. Uh, they left hardly any stone unturned and, uh, many of the people in the audience appeared to be having borderline religious experiences. Uh, I know we got a question about that that we'll use to open up this, uh, this episode of the show, but hey, man, the, the people want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. It's been a couple days now. We've we've gotten the chance to let the performance sink in as we sit here on Monday afternoon. How are you feeling about what you witnessed out there at Washington Grizzly Stadium on Friday night? Well, first of all, no regrets. Yeah, I, I absolutely, it was absolutely no regrets. Yeah, we we made the right decision to go see Guns N' Roses at Washington Grizzly Stadium. People. We're, we're having a time at this one. You yep. mentioned the almost religious experiences in the crowd during the show. At least 
an hour before the show even started, I watched a woman vomit onto her phone. Like holding her phone while looking at it, and then it just whoop, and it went right onto the screen of her phone. She was not doing okay. Yeah. Later on in the evening, I saw a couple making out in sort of a dark corner, sort of under the stadium eaves, sort of. And one hates to speculate, but just from the movements of a pale elbow in the darkness, seemed like a fellow was getting himself a handy. Okay. Down there uh, under the Washington Grizzly Stadium. That's just, that was kind of what was going on. Slice of life. Mm -hmm. That's the sort of just crowd experience people were having as Guns N' Roses came extremely loud and extremely long. And I think maybe the only concert I've ever been where due to circumstances, there was no opening band. It just, we showed up, we sat there until it got dark. Uh, Guns N' Roses just came on and the concert began. Yeah. Uh, all those fellas are pushing 60 at this point. Axel Rose is 59. I think Slash, Slash is 56. Uh, Duff McKagan is, is up there as well, 56, 57 you, years old. You wouldn't know it. You would not know it. I was just going to say, everyone knows the reputation of Axel Rose at this point. A guy who has put in a lot of time uh, over the years, establishing a reputation as a guy who maybe hasn't been trying all that hard, a guy who maybe... Uh, wasn't known as a gamer, a guy who maybe wasn't going to go out there on stage and knock it out of the park every single time. In 2021, what we saw from the man in Missoula, I came away from the show feeling like he gave us everything he had. But hell, man, at 60 years old, out there doing a two-hour-long rock and roll show where you're singing in a vocal register that was probably a lot easier to hit when you're 19, 20 years old than it is when you're 60... And so Axl Rose has lost a step or two. And that that is just plain to see when you go see Guns N' Roses live. And it is cast in in very stark contrast because you're also up there with Slash and Duff, both of whom essentially appear to have been unfrozen from some manner of cryogenic holding facility and brought on stage so that they can perform exactly as they did. Back in the 80s, you know, Slash has got a little bit of the old man face happening, but he's also got he's still got that hair. As far as we know, I don't know what's going on up under the top hat. So uh, could be a lot of different <laughs> stuff. But for, from to the naked eye, he appears about exactly the same as he ever did. And that dude fucking tore it down on the yeah. guitar. The whole set was basically like a showcase for Slash to play to do his stuff. And there were multiple times during the set when basically Axl Rose would leave the stage, I assume to get some oxygen back in the uh, in the backstage area. And like the, the rest of the band would essentially clear the lane and Slash would would no no lie, do like a 10 minute guitar solo. Yeah. One right? man show. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, we talk sometimes in the world of combat sports about how certain styles age better than others. Yeah. Axel, he's kind of like a precision counterpuncher and mercurial genius, a la an Anderson Silva type, perhaps, where when the reflexes start to fade just a little, it becomes immediately apparent and he can't do the same stuff that he used to do. Slash, on the other hand, is like a heavyweight slugger, like a heavyweight power puncher where his gifts are going to be some of the last to go. Yeah. 
he he might be as good now as he's ever been. Yeah. It's it's incredible what he's able to do. Duff, on the other hand, looked like he was in training for a contender series bout. Yeah, if they could call him up this week, he'd go out there, win a fight on Tuesday in the contender series. Duff looks better than ever. That dude looked like they had to drag him out of the gym to play the show and that he probably went straight back to the gym after it was over because he is uh he's in impeccable shape for for a man of any age not the least a man pushing 60 years old that dude is he's a he's put together out there at this point it looked like he put down a kettlebell only long enough to pick up a bass guitar yeah yeah was impressive impressive, impressive yeah. stuff from him all right we're going to get into this here first question from minor seinfeld character kenny bania he writes what was your favorite song from the gnr show now see this gets to the heart of the matter because like i said aside from the ones that that you just couldn't float out there in 2021 they played all the songs every song in mm-hmm. fact before the encore you looked at me and you said they got to come out and play Paradise City now, right? And I said they have to. It's the only song left. It's the only thing they haven't played. And you said, well, they could fuck around and come back out and play Don't Cry, but they're not going to do that at this point. Q Guns and Roses coming back on stage for the encore immediately starts playing Don't Cry. We looked at each other like, well, shit. We're yeah. like two and a half hours into this thing. And they're still playing Don't Cry. Thing about Axl Rose. You to sit through a seven-minute ballad at this point. It started pretty rough for our boy Axl Rose early on in the set. In fact, when he first started singing, they opened up uh, with It's So Easy. And when he first started singing, I thought to myself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. I thought this is going to be terrible. Like, he's going to be terrible. But it seemed like he warmed up throughout the show. And then down the stretch where it was just kind of hit after hit after hit, He's actually pretty good. Like he nailed a bunch of those hits uh, in the second half of the set. Uh, he, re- he did a really good job on knocking on heaven's door. Uh, yeah. He did a pretty good job on November rain. I was sitting there waiting for sweet child of mine and he performed that pretty, pretty goddamn well as, as well. Uh, I don't know. Did you have a favorite? Did you have a standout track where you're like, that's the one estranged kind of a guns and roses deep cut, but the true heads appreciate the brilliance of estranged which was like one of those trilogy videos they did where it was like november rain don't cry you know long ass sort of like ballads and estranged which is like an eight minute sort of like operatic hard rock song um that does a bunch of different stuff throughout i love that song and i felt like everybody really nailed it on that one um so i appreciate that i mean i had some of the same thoughts as you did that when they first came out you're like oh Oh no! Yeah, what are, what are we about to sit through? But honestly, when you hear damn near sixty year old Axl Rose hitting some of those high notes, yeah, in because Guns N' Roses the the vocal registry that they ask for for some of those songs, it's quite a range. Yeah, it's, it's and not he, easy, and he's able to do it. My favorite part though about it is, for one thing, Axl's still going to try to give you the Guns N' Roses stage show. Like he's going to run around even if he's not quite clocking out at the same forty speed that he was when it was 1989 or whatever, he's still going to run around on the stage. He's going to pick up the mic stand and like put it on the mic just long enough to like dance with it a little bit and then throw the mic stand dramatically away. And he's going to climb gingerly up on the uh, amplifiers at some points. But my favorite part is how after every single song, he would stand there, arms at his sides, like face bright, like a nervous kid at a school play waiting for the song to end to give a dramatic bow. Yeah. Every song. Bowed out. And it was adorable. I loved it. 
and we, it also, yeah, I got It's got to be said while he's up there doing the Axl Rose shimmy snake dance stuff. He kind of has a look on his face like we can all agree this is ridiculous, right? <laughs> that that, it, that we're all still doing this. But here's the thing. Uh, this will be my last word on the subject. We, we can talk about how Axl Rose has lost a step, et cetera, et cetera. Everybody from Guns N' Roses is 60 years old. Uh, it still struck me that it was pretty cool to sit there and watch Guns N' Roses perform Welcome to the Jungle live. And they played it yeah. pretty early in the set, which I thought was kind of a veteran move. But when they started playing that one, that's when it kind of struck me like, oh, this song gets played at every sporting event in every stadium across the world weekly. And now I'm sitting here watching the guys who wrote it actually play it. That was pretty cool, I got to say. Yeah. All right. Next question this week comes to us from Isaac Spooner, who just writes, fellas. So Ray Cooper, the third, huh? Ray Cooper, the third Ben goes out there this past weekend at PFL seven. He defeats Rory McDonald in the uh, PFL welterweight semifinals. He's going to advance to the finals where he's got a date with a fella by the name of Magomed Magomed Karamov. So I'm not going to tell anyone where they need to put their money for that one. It's but, a rematch uh, as well. So, you know, he, he's trying for a little redemption here. But here we, here we go. R- Rory McDonald now bows out in the semifinals of the PFL welterweight tournament. Clay Collard also lost on this same card. Roush Manfio advances to the PFL lightweight playoff final. Uh, the, the, the big names have kind of been rooted out here of the PFL season, which maybe is one of the drawbacks of the season slash tournament format. But here we go. We got these these PFL tournament finals set. Is there anything do you think that that can be made of the fact that maybe some of these big free agent signings, these big names like Anthony Pettis, like Rory McDonald that the PFL has brought in haven't necessarily hit home runs while they've been there? Okay, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to ask ourselves, what exactly was PFL realistically hoping for from those signings? Was it hoping that all those guys are going to go all the way and win the million dollars and win the seasons? Because you had to know, just looking at who you were signing, they were on the downslope. Like they, even if, you know, Roy McDonald's only 32, Anthony Pettis is 34, even if they don't seem like chronologically like they're over the hill necessarily, we've probably seen their best stuff. And they they put a lot of miles on the old odometer. And so you had to know that there was a good chance that they were going to come in and we were going to kind of see the limits of what they're capable of at this point in their careers. But also, maybe that's fine if you're PFL, because maybe one of the things that you think those guys are doing for you is they bring a little bit of attention with them. And then if they then lose to somebody along the way, especially if they lose in the playoff part of the season then they give a little bit of a bump to whoever beat them. Like we, if, you're, if you're trying to get us to care about a Ray Cooper the third fight, you kind of need one of those other names like Roy McDonald on the other side of it. That's what's going to get us to mark it on the calendar and to tune in and see what happens. If he beats Roy McDonald and goes on and moves on, now we're sort of paying attention to him. And that's how I would think if you're a PFL, you're, you're, you must approach it with some sense that... We know these. we're not getting the best possible version of some of these guys, but they could give a little bit of rub to some of the other people who might be pretty damn good but aren't getting much attention. Yeah. 
Do you think that happens, though, if, if uh, Ray Cooper III wins this PFL tournament or Roush Manfio goes out there and wins the, the lightweight tournament? Are, are stars born by that? Does that make them somebody? Uh, you know, I think it's it's worked a little bit for a guy like uh, like Lance Palmer, who's won, won twice now and, and was a guy who was sort of on our radar even before that happened, but maybe kind of upped his his stature by winning those PFL tournaments. But like if we ran down a list and, and we're running a trivia game here where I was like, Ben, name the PFL tournament winners. Like, I don't know how many of them we would we could ace. So like, I, I don't know, man, like uh, I, I don't necessarily know. And maybe they're not even hoping that that happens, but like I don't, I don't necessarily know if by osmosis there's a lot of star power being transferred here if one of these guys goes out there and, and wins this tournament with a with a, a win over a big name in the semifinals. Yeah, well, I mean Ray Cooper III also gonna have his hands full with a Magomed squared kind of situation in yeah. his next fight. Yeah. All right. Next question this week comes to us from professional hockey player Mike Ricci who writes, is Musasi undervalued as one of the top middleweights in the world and perhaps of all time? He has the ups and downs, but has consistently been in that top tier. Of course, the 36-year-old Gegard Musasi, Ben, goes out there uh, on Friday at Bellator 264, defends his middleweight championship over there with a third-round TKO over John Salter. Gegard Mousasi, 11-1 in his last 12 fights now. He had the loss to Rafael Lovato Jr. in Bellator, which is his only loss over there in that promotion. That was in June of 2019. Prior to that, his, his previous most recent loss was to Uriah Hall all the way back in September of 2015. Of course, he went on to avenge that loss as well. But in the, the following year, 2016, he defeated Uriah Hall. Gegard Mousasi is one of these curious cases of a guy who actually ended his UFC career on a five-fight winning streak. Wins over Vitor Belfort, Uriah Hall, and Chris Weidman at UFC 210 was the, uh, was the last fight in the octagon for Gegard Mousasi. And now he's the Bellator champ. It still seems like he is pretty good. He's still out there winning. Uh, is he underrated, do you think, in the, in the grand scheme of the 185-pound division, either, either with the, the lay of the land today or just kind of historically at 185 pounds? Well, first of all, I want to talk about why you assume that this question comes from Mike Ricci, the hockey player, and not Mike Ricci, the pro MMA fighter. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's Remember a good him point. From, from the Ultimate Fighter? Uh, I just looked him up real quick. He went through the – he was on the Team Carwin versus Team Nelson – season of yeah. the ultimate fighter one of the people he beat on his way to the finals was neil magny he knocked out neil magny that's so pretty impressive it's a nice feather in the I mean, cap in my defense we do get a lot more emails to the podcast from professional hockey players than we do okay. from former professional mma fighters so i guess that's, that's fair um he would also though go on to lose in the ultimate fighter finale to colton smith who it must be said one of the most forgettable Ultimate Fighter winners. Like, when's the last time anybody mentioned Colton Smith? That- Mike Mike Ricci is the guy, if I'm not mistaken, that in the video yep. package promoting his fight was. I know what you're going to say. Was in his his delightful, uh, finely furnished condo in Canada, sipping white wine with his girlfriend. You know, dressed dressed like he was about to go out to the finest. Uh, mm-hmm eating establishment i still remember it to this day not classy your, fella maybe he was friends average. with rory mcdonald yeah, yeah those guys look like they run together uh not your average uh mma hype piece for mike yeah. ricci and lost colton smith who then 
immediately lost three straight bouts in the UFC. I mean, in fairness, maybe a, a kind of a tough run in retrospect because he got Bobby Knuckles, Mike Chiesa, then Carlos Diego Fiera. Uh, lost all those fights it was cut so that was one of the shortest lived like post tough like not exactly a star maker maker uh of a season there for colton smith but in answer to the question about gegar musasi is he underrated has he been underrated yes kind of, like especially when you looked at the the timing of and like where he was and where the division was at the time when he left the ufc on that winning streak i remember at times especially when it was like, you know, the the brief Michael Bisping era of the the UFC middleweight division when Michael Bisping was the champ, and it looked like, okay, if you were to match him up against Gegard Musasi, Musasi probably beats him. And even Musasi would say that, but he also would say it with a sort of like shrug, like, oh, well, yeah, like I'd probably be, win that fight, but like I would never ever in a million years be given that fight, so whatever. And then he just sort of accepted that fate, went over there to Bellator and continued being really good. And so, yeah, I do think I know the hardcores, I think, appreciate Gegard Mousasi, both what he can do and just the sort of different personality that he brings, where he's not jumping up on the tables and shouting at you. He's, in fact, doing the opposite. And it sometimes even seems like he's down in the dumps when you talk to him. But really, he's just being honest. Uh, I, I like having that guy around. In a yeah. lot of different ways. But then if you think about like how long he has been good for, because this is a guy who was like first came to our attention when he was fighting for like Dream and then mm-hmm. Strike Force. Like that was damn near ten years ago, Chad. Yeah. And and he's still really good. That's that is a lot tougher to do than people think. Yeah. I think we are all glad that there is a character like Gegard Musasi in this sport and he just continues to kind of quietly plug away. Over there in Bellator, just winning fights again and again and again. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how long he can keep that up as he forges into his late 30s. I, I think we're all uh, all kind of rooting for Musasi a little bit there. All right, next question this week comes to us potentially from American actor best known for his portrayals of Dawson Leary in the WB series Dawson's Creek and Johnny Mox Moxon in Varsity Blues, James Vanderbeek. However, this email comes from Jim Vanderbeek. So I don't know hmm. if that's a different person or if we are just such good friends with actor James Vanderbeek that we can we just call a guy Jim at this point. I mean, he's a longtime listener, I assume. He's just he, none of this James nonsense. He writes, how did you dudes feel about this UFC free weekend? I honestly felt relief. I'm not sure why I watch every UFC at this point, but I do. I want to see every highlight live. I want to hear Dana say something absurd at the moment that it happened. And most of all, I want to be informed as a fan of the CME proper and hashtag wild on Wednesdays. It was so goddamn nice to have a free Saturday evening discourse, please. Uh, you know, I, I know the feeling, right? The grind can get you down a little bit when there's just a, every single weekend, the UFC is rolling out there with just some fights and, uh, and you feel like you gotta, you have this responsibility to pay attention to it. And then when you get a free weekend, it's like your parents are out of town a little bit, right? You get a, get to throw a party over there at the house, do whatever you want. Get uh, some of those uh, Mountain Dew malt liquors, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, though I do want to remind everyone, you don't have to watch every UFC, even when they're happening, especially now that we got them on the ESPN plus feel free to just let them happen and then catch up later. That, that it's actually pretty easy to do there with the app. So I just want to throw that out there. You know, 
I noticed a phenomenon, and maybe some of this is just that it seems more prevalent because I'm way inside the MMA bubble here, but I noticed on Twitter come Saturday afternoon, evening, a lot of people who are used to just this being a a dependable thing in their lives, that every Saturday night there's going to be a UFC and you can get on Twitter with your your friends and talk about it as it's going on. And then when there isn't one, I notice a lot of people sort of looking around like, what do I do? What do I do now? And like, let's find a different MMA event to watch, which I also think is a fun idea and I yeah. encourage us to do more of that. But I it made me realize like, yeah, they've conditioned us. The UFC has successfully conditioned us to just be like, there's... Some sort of UFC shit on every Saturday night. I don't even if I want to complain about how this one kind of sucks. It's still a dependable point in my week. I know that all my the the regulars are going to be on Twitter talking about it. I can join in with them. It's a sense of community. It's a thing to do. It's a thing that we all like a shared interest that we can all rally around, and that's nice. Yeah. And and like I think that that is. I I don't know how intentional it was that the UFC did that, but it's a a kind of sneakily successful thing that it's done yeah. has gotten us just to permanently pencil it into our schedules. Now, the flip side of that is that the people who don't want to do that, who don't want every single Saturday night to be like, you kind of risk alienating those fans. Because we've also heard from a lot of the people who are like, I just can't keep up with it all. And right. so then I end up drifting away. And the only time I even get clued in that it's happening is when it's a truly big one and I'm, I'm missing a lot more than I used to and it's just not as big a part of my life. Like, that's going to happen too, but you're also going to get the the true shit-eating wild people for this sport who just get so used to it being a, a thing in their lives that then it stops kind of mattering w- the quality of what you're offering as long as you just, you can offer that regularly kind of scheduled meal that we yeah. depend on. I have long said that the fans who are still fully engaged watching every fight, setting it and forgetting it, that they will be there in their seats on Saturday from the prelims to the main event are the true heroes. And that the UFC actually kind of does not deserve those people. Like the loyalty and uh, consistency that has been engendered in that fan base is really something special. And I don't know that the UFC has earned it, to be quite frank. Like they they put on a good show, but like those people, man, those people are the are the true heroes. It is also, and you just mentioned this, but it is also amazing to me how wholeheartedly a lot of the the this fan base has accepted what is essentially a tectonic shift, not only in the schedule, but also in like the very fabric of the sport. Because it happened kind of slowly and over a long period of time throughout the life of the Fox deal and now the UFC deal that it's weird to me that we that like basically we don't talk about it that much like we talk about it on this show but I don't know how much of a topic it actually is in the like the MMA media or the uh, the subculture kind of subculture wide that like the thing that we watch now is just completely different than it was 10 years ago. The UFC product is, it's, it's, it's just a completely different animal than the thing that, that essentially made the UFC famous that like the UFC thundered into the mainstream and became this kind of like sports property juggernaut selling a completely different thing than they, than is what they put on uh, every weekend now. And we have all just accepted it like almost without comment in a lot of cases. And to me, that's just amazing, man. Like it's amazing that they were able to pull that off. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a content machine, and that is one of the things that I think makes it so valuable as a piece of Endeavor's portfolio because you look around at what people are looking for to fill their streaming services and what they see the use of live sports programming to be, and the UFC is like, we can do that, and just there's just a ton of it, and that is what people are looking for, and that's what makes it such a, a hugely valuable asset. I'm going to do this question uh, from Rob Walden because it is kind of along in, in the same vein, I guess you could say. Uh, he writes, was it wise for Bellator to move to Showtime? It's definitely a good thing that they found a stable home after a couple years of bouncing around, but I'm not going to drop 15 bucks a month for the secondary MMA promotion, and I'm sure lots of people like myself, serious MMA fans who aren't quite shit-eating wild men, feel the same. At one point, there was talk of having tentpole events on CBS, but the summer is pretty much over, and that didn't happen. Without that, I'm just not sure what the ceiling is for the promotion or its potential stars. What was wrong with Paramount network. Uh, and this is a topic we've talked about, not a ton, but uh, occasionally when it comes to Bellator. Uh, and in some ways, I agree that it seems good for Bellator to be part of the Showtime network, because at least there is a sports apparatus and a combat sports apparatus that exists on Showtime, where Paramount, it was free, which was great, if, as long as you had cable and everybody who wanted to find it could kind of find it. But like, it was also sort of like Bellator was the, was the orphan over there. Like, you know, they were kind of tucked in around, uh, Yellowstone broadcasts and whatnot. And like, it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't a great content fit. And so yeah. in some ways it seems good and fitting for Bellator to be on Showtime. But in other ways, I think Rob is right here that it's like kind of a tough sell, especially considering everything we just talked about with how much content the UFC is cranking out and how much attention the UFC kind of commands from everybody in this sport. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tough sell, I think, to be like, all right, and now in addition to all of that, drop 15 bucks a month for Showtime to watch Gegard Mousasi and next week, what do they got next week? It's Haritanov against Czech Congo, I believe. Uh, that is kind of a tough sell. So, so I see it as kind of like a mixed blessing, if you will, that like, it feels like Bellator has kind of found its niche inside the Viacom family, that it is where it should have been all along, but that at this point, it's kind of a tough sell to get people to drop that extra cash when the, when we're already spending money and committing so much of our attention to the UFC. Yeah. I guess for me, the question is what metric for success is Viacom using when it right. comes to Bellator? Because you're right, once Spike TV rebranded to Paramount Network, Bellator didn't really fit in with the vibe over there anymore. Yeah. And so it makes sense to move to Showtime, which has a history of promoting boxing events and being in the combat sports space. And so being over there, trying to get some MMA fans to follow you over there and get some new Showtime subscriptions. I mean, that's how they got me as a Showtime subscriber, is moving Bellator over there. So I'm sure that... There's some aspect of it where they're looking at it and going, we don't really care about ratings numbers that much because we're a premium cable network. It's We're not using the same metric to determine whether this is working or not. If we can get some new subscribers out of it, maybe that works. Also, maybe we got to just give Bellator some time on Showtime. It hasn't been that long since it's moved over. And I think they hurt a little bit of their... like core audience by shifting it around so much so quickly in, in just a span of a few years. And so it was like people were only going to look so hard to find where, how do I watch Bellator before they, they give up. And so you, you probably need a little bit of time 
to stay in one place and get people to understand like here is where you can count on Bellator being for the foreseeable future. Um, so I don't know. I, I also like I, I get with that the the sort of logic of this question that it, did you just make sure that fewer and fewer people are able to access Bellator and able to watch it? Uh, and I'm sure that that's a concern. But I also think like. Bellator still has enough of an ability here or there to put together fights that reach out to enough of the fan base and get people to go, all right, fuck it. How do I, how do I watch this? This one I actually have to see. But then again, Bellator also has a lot of those events where you don't have to see them. And that's, that's the problem right now is that again, like when you don't have the roster that the UFC has, it's tough to put together like that kind of consistent lineup. Like it's one thing to put together one event put everything you got and really build to something like that AJ McKee pit bull fight or something. And everybody kind of gets excited about it and watches it. But then it's like, what do you have two weeks later? It's a little bit tough when you, when your roster is Bellator's. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see if any of this CBS stuff materializes because, uh, it has been rumored to be in the pipeline for a while. And like Rob writes here, it just didn't and hasn't materialized yet, but it, you know, we haven't gotten word that it's off the table either. It still seems like a possibility that, that Bellator could show up, uh, you know, now and again on CBS, which would probably be a nice feather in the cap for Scott Coker and the stuff Bellator is doing over there. So we'll just have to wait and see if that does indeed materialize. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Grant Ament, who writes, looks like a lot Looks a lot like the UFC is doing its damnedest this week to outdo itself with JSF, just some fights, by putting out a card that's on paper even weaker than the Hall versus Strickland card from a couple weeks ago. Any bright spots? So here we got UFC on ESPN 29. Ben, your headlining fight is a middleweight contest between Jared Cannonier and Kelvin Gastelum. I'm actually looking at this co-main here, the lightweight meeting between Clay Guida and Mark Madsen as a thing that is kind of interesting. Because remember Mark Madsen, the uh, Olympic medalist in wrestling, uh, the Danish uh, 36-year-old guy making his his trek over to MMA, seemed to arrive uh, with some hype for his first two UFC fights. And You refer, of, of course, to Mark O. Madsen. I, I really enjoy that, how, remember where they were, for a while they would keep saying the O, the middle initial, and it made him sound Irish? Yeah, and it, like, it still does use the middle initial here on his Wikipedia page, but on the actual listings of the fight, we're just going with Mark Madsen here. Middle name Overguard, in case you're wondering what the O stands for. But, uh, see, this is, and again, like, this is just a testament to the UFC and, frankly, the lightweight division, that we've got a dude like Mark Overguard Madsen hanging out being an Olympic medalist, seeming to have all of the upside in the world if he can put all this stuff together. And it's just like, we forget about him. We forget he even yep. exists until he rolls into this co-main event against Clay Guida. And I think it's kind of an interesting fight. And this he continues to be kind of an interesting prospect, if you can use such a word about a man who's into his mid to late 30s. But like, I'm interested to see if he can develop into something. So if you're asking, are there bright spots? I kind of got that highlighted there on my on my fight card. Yeah, I mean, he basically didn't fight the entire pandemic. I don't know how much of that is like travel restrictions or what, but like his right. last fight was early March 2020. And then, you know, by the end of March, we were living in a very different reality and haven't seen him since. Man, if I were Clay Guida, when they called me up to offer me this fight, I'd be like, okay, I see what you guys are thinking. You're thinking like, well, what does Guida do? He goes out there, sort of high output, 
good wrestler, knows how to win rounds just by sheer volume and enthusiasm, pretty much. And then we're going to put him up against a guy who we're excited about for the future, but who also comes in with pretty damn good wrestling chops and just is a really great athlete overall. You thinking this guy's going to beat my ass. And you're going to get a little bit of that, the Clay Guida rub among any of the fans who still, where that name still means anything to them. Right. Like, he must. He, he's a savvy enough dude in this fight game. He must know that that's what they're thinking. Yeah. Um, you know, other than that, yeah, you got the uh, the main event between Jared Cannonier and Kelvin Gastelum, where it looks like this is sort of a a pivotal point for Kelvin Gastelum. He needs to win one in a bad way, but also this is a tough matchup for him, man. Like, just the, he he has struggled a little bit with some of the big middleweights, and yet you know we know he can't go down to welterweight without killing himself. It seems. And Jared Cannonier comes in as like a, a pretty good-sized middleweight who could do a lot of stuff. That's a tough matchup for Kelvin Gastelum at a time when he is in dire need of yeah. a victory. Yeah, and it it shapes up as frankly a fairly fun fight. Anyway, even if you know, even if as the main event here, it, it fits into I think what we were talking about a few minutes ago, just in terms of this UFC product being different than it, it was a decade or so ago. Uh, but there, I like there's some fun stuff to see here if you if you want to watch a couple of the fights or, or want to sit through the whole card on Saturday. Like there's reason to believe that you will maybe have a good time. Uh, speaking of having a good time, I remember when the UFC went up to, I believe it was Milwaukee to do an event and Clay Guida was in attendance and man, Clay Guida's just infectious enthusiasm for what is happening around him. is really something to see. If you've never seen it, like all of the, uh, all of the high energy enthusiasm that he brings to like the walkout and the actual fights. He's kind of like that all the time. I remember him being Mm -hmm. at this thing in Milwaukee and like, man, he couldn't have been happier. Like he wasn't fighting. He was just there. He's taking pictures, shaking hands. He attended the weigh-ins and was like, (laughs) it was, he was basically just like a UFC super fan. Like I was adorable. It was one of the, it was one of the best things I've ever seen. Clay Guida was a, seems like a, uh, a good dude outside the, outside the cage as well. I'll say this for Clay Guida. At this point, it seems like Clay Guida knows who he is yeah. and what he's about, just in life and in fighting. Next question this week comes to us from Arouge Islam, who writes, The MMA Hour is back in our lives starting today. How happy do you think MMA websites are to have the free content machine back? I am fully <laughs> expecting five articles on every major site to come out of Dustin Poirier's interview on the show today and another three to come out of Israel Adesanya's. Uh, this is an interesting point that, like, I hadn't thought about too much, but man, you will remember during the heyday of Ariel Helwani's MMA hour. Congrats to him, by the way, for being yeah. back home over there at MMA fighting and, and seemingly having uh, his hands back on the wheel in terms of steering his own ship and, and guiding his own career. And I think he's happy to be there and, and we are happy for him that, that he has the flagship show now, the MMA hour back in all of our lives. But yeah, man, this is a good point. Remember when this thing was at, at its height in its heyday the first time around and basically every MMA website was just a recap of what had happened on the MMA hour that day. And every single story was some quotes that somebody had said to Ariel Helwani. And like, honestly, that's probably a lot of the secret to that guy's clout in the industry is just sort of like, he's the one out here breaking all this news that everyone else can aggregate. Well, yeah. And he's really good at getting a a wide range of stuff out of people in these interviews, which is kind of what Aruj Islam is referencing here. Cause this is very true. Like the nature of not just, MMA media, kind of internet media in general, but especially the way MMA media works is let's break 
this stuff down into the smallest bite-sized portion of content so that we can get the most out of it. Like one interview, let's choose like he says one interesting thing. Fine. Let's do a story where we put uh, something about that thing in the headline, one or two quotes about it in like a 500 word story. But then we don't need to go on and talk about the other stuff he said that stuff can all be mined for its own separate story and maximize sort of like clicks and page views that way and he's right that that is exactly what's going to happen here i mean i remember when ariel and i were both at mma fighting at the same time one of my least favorite duties to be assigned with was watch this guy's interview on the mma hour and then very quickly turn around a story on it because it just felt like okay like i understand that this is what the content machine demands but also as a writer doesn't exactly feel like you're really spreading your wings a whole lot as you're just like recapping one of Ariel's interviews. But, you know, it also, you'd, you'd sit there and you'd be like, okay, he's always going to get something kind of surprising, something that other people aren't getting out of his guests. And uh, he also, one thing that I admire and why I think that Ariel is sort of like a, a true talent at interviewing is, and I remember sometimes we used to do, when he had MMA rated, which I know you briefly like worked for too, uh, and sometimes I would go on there and like co-host a thing with him where we would interview some fighter and we'd kind of take turns asking so many questions. And sometimes somebody comes on and they just don't want to be interviewed and they're, they're determined to not be a good interview. And my reaction in a lot of those situations is just be like, fine, dude, have it your way if yeah. that's how you want it. And Ariel does not do that. Ariel's not going to let you go that easily. If he will make the, the story into the like without, without doing it. Like super noticeably, he will kind of make it into like, why are you being a dick about this interview? Sort of like he's going to get something out of you one way or another. And because he's just not going to let you get off without like trying in these interviews. I appreciate that. There's a, there's a real talent to that that I don't think people always appreciate. The next question this week comes to us from Octavio Paz, who notes that their pronouns are they, them, which we always appreciate so that we don't make assholes out of ourselves here on the show. They write... Where does the PFL commentary team rank amongst the major promotions? Between Randy Couture and Kenny Florian, there's quite a bit of real-life fight experience, which the two of them can articulate pretty well in the moment. And novelist Sean O'Connell clearly has a commendable comfort level with language. Compared to the other industry giants, I've found them to be pleasantly tolerable. And this... I think is completely true. We have talked about it a couple times before. I can't remember if it was here on the proper or over on the Patreon page over there. By the way, if you want to join the team, we are there all week long. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Uh, the PFL commentary team is just flat good. Yeah. They are, man. They It's like, it's kind of the gem of what PFL has going for itself, in my opinion. Because, you know, there, there's some stuff that's a little bit hokey happening over in the pfl i think people we can all decide how we feel about the smart cage and all the stuff that they put up on the screen too much stuff chad's too much stuff on screen and the quick six uh stuff and the the tournament format the season format how everybody gets their points how uh uh, you know the the uh, the seating works and all this different stuff but uh that commentary team is honestly pretty dynamite and i think you really got a shout out sean o'connell for being yeah. a guy, as I have said before, if you didn't know who he was and you just turned on the PFL, you would be like, oh, this guy is one of the better professional play-by-play commentators in MMA. And then you wouldn't even know unless you found out or you knew who the guy was. Oh, actually, he's a former fighter and a former PFL tournament winner who also just happens to be a pretty GD-talented broadcaster. So, like, Yeah. 
Absolutely. I mean, you you if you didn't know better, you would think like, okay, well, here's the strictly broadcasting guy. Yeah, that they brought in. That he, he looks like, like they're John Anik. Yeah, he looks like he's been doing it his entire career. I mean, he was a like a sports talk radio host and everything, even when he was fighting uh, in the UFC. So he does have a lot of experience with it, but he just seems so natural in that role. I also appreciate him being identified as a novelist. I think he would appreciate that as well. The damn smart cage, Chad. It seems like every time I hear about something having to do with the smart cage, the price tag for the thing goes up. <laughs> it's like when you're t- when you're talking to a friend where he's like really excited about like how much he spent on this really expensive suit or something and like he wants to hammer that point for you so you'll know how nice the suit is and it's like every time you talk it seems like the thing goes up by five hundred dollars until pretty soon your friend has you believing that he's walking around in a fifteen thousand dollar suit that's how i feel about this smart cage every single time it gets brought up like it feels like a couple extra mil gets added to the cost of this thing yeah and i can't help as my maybe just me being an old fuddy-duddy Every time I hear about it going, and for what? Who gives a shit about the smart cage, bro? I do not fucking care. Like, don't go down this road, PFL, because you have some other good stuff going on. And we have seen that whenever an MMA promotion starts trying to get us to pay too much attention to the fighting surface... Rather than the fighting action, yeah. it's never a good sign, man. Remember when yeah. the IFL made a big deal about switching to like the hexagon or it was like the Yama pit? All, whenever you make too big a deal about that stuff, it shows that you are insecure about what you're offering in the other areas. A lot of people don't know this, but the smart cage is actually made from solid gold. <laughs> Underneath just, those, the padding, you take the padding off, it's just gold under there. I just... Stop throwing so much damn information at me. Maybe it's, the, the smart cage might be too smart. That's my problem. That's true. Yeah. What if it uh, becomes sentient? What then? Have we thought about that? It's a smart cage thinking. We're all in trouble if that happens. Yeah. The, the next question this week comes to us for, from our friend, the Great Dane, who writes, you guys see that video of a KO'd fighter getting choked nearly, mm-hmm. maybe all the way unconscious by the referee after the KO'd fighter kept trying to fight him. I don't know what to think about it. It's admittedly a funny video to watch, but there must be a better way to handle that situation, right? Also, that was a pretty slick fake shot overhand right the winning fighter pulled off. Finally, a big shout out to Cat Pope for calling it the quickest 0-2 performance in history now the reason that i have seen this video ben is that aaron dane our guy the great dane sent it to us on twitter that's how i saw it and uh fuck around and find out man some of these refs got the skills you know what i mean you don't want to you don't want to try to shoot your uh half knocked out double leg takedown on this ref because he's going to get you in that guillotine bro he's going to choke you unconscious as aaron dane pointed out about that there must be a better way to handle that situation didn't that ref seem very satisfied with himself? Yeah. Walking no, off after mm-hmm. hitting that guillotine? Wouldn't you? He, Come on, be honest. <laughs> wouldn't yeah, you? He has some swagger in that walk and it's like I don't I don't know if you needed to choke that man all the way out <laughs> like that. I think you especially if you do have those skills as a referee, it seemed like maybe you could have just neutralized him until his corner and other people could get in there and help you get a hold of him and calm him down and stuff. You ain't need to put the man to sleep and then walk off with a shit-eating grin like, hey, what what can I tell you? That referee got skills. I'm into it. Of course you are. Next question this week comes to us from the magic loogie that hit Keith Hernandez. (laughs) Well, I mean, the Seinfeld references now are kind of getting out of control, but okay. I mean, 
if we know anything about the co-main event podcasts faithful, it's, it's that they will, uh, they'll run a gimmick into the ground. Yep. All the way. So will we, frankly. Uh, the magic loogie that hit Keith Hernandez writes, by the end of the year, how many titles will we see change hands? And then he, th- he or she th- or uh, throws out some, uh, some, some possibilities here. Glover over Blagovitz, Jan over Sterling, Colby over Usman, Ortega over uh, Volkanovsky, Poirier over uh, Charlie Olives. Which, which of these champions, Ben, do you think are the most likely to not finish out the year as, as champ? Hmm. Okay. I'm, I gotta say Charlie Olives. Yeah. I mean, the, the only thing I guess that makes me think is if, is the timeline that we're putting on this being the end of the year. Like, so basically in the next four months, right. I mean, do, do we put together a Dustin Poirier versus uh, Charles Oliveira fight within that time span? Maybe not. But if we do put it together, uh, I think of all those other people, um, well, actually, I mean, when is the the Peter Yan Aljamain Sterling fight booked for? That's the other one, and I, I I don't know if we have a timetable on that yet, do we? Because I don't know if it's uh I don't know if Sterling is totally healthy yet. Hold on, let me see if I uh, let me see if I can find that out because I don't think uh I don't think that Glover beats Blagovitz as much as it would be kind of awesome to see Glover Tashira hang the banner. Oh um, well, it looks like the title. you. UFC 267 in Abu Dhabi is where is maybe the targeted date for right now for Aljamain Sterling versus Pirion. So, yeah, okay, if that goes down, especially Aljamain Sterling having been off with the neck surgery, we saw the first fight was going, uh, and to have to jump back in and fight Pirion after all that, okay, I will, I will amend my answer and say that Aljamain Sterling is the guy most likely to not be a champ by the end of the year. Yeah, I don't think Colby beats Usman. Nope. Uh, I think Ortega probably has a chance against Volkanovski. But Volkanovski's probably the guy to bet on there. He's good. He's just fucking good. He is. So I think, yeah, uh, Peter Yan and Aljamain Sterling and Dustin Poirier and Charles Oliveira are probably your most likely places to have a title change hands. Although, as you know, anything can happen. Uh, Next question this week comes to us from Brandon Boyd, who writes, honestly, can McGregor actually be champion again? He's probably two fights and three years away from another title shot, and he's already 33 years old. He's too old to cut to featherweight, and he's too small for welterweight. Realistically, how much longer do we have to put up with his shit? Uh, (laughs) So Conor McGregor, as we noted last week, still very online as he continues to rehab the broken leg over there, getting into it with Daniel Cormier getting into it a little bit now with Michael Bisping. Uh, Here's the thing about McGregor though, man, even though I, and I think a lot of people get the sense that we have seen the best from him already and that we kind of know what he's capable of and that there are appear to be very few surprises at this point with what Conor McGregor is going to offer you in the cage. The thing is he's going to get a lot of chances. Yeah. If he sticks around and he continues to like be in any way competitive, he's going to get a lot of chances from the UFC to win another championship. He just is. So like, I don't know that it's even a question of like how good he is, but like, he's just going to keep getting chances until, until he's just not viable anymore. I mean, that's the one thing I would disagree with about Brandon Boyd's characterization here is saying that he's probably two fights and three years away for another title shot. No, he's not. When, when he is upright and walking again, the UFC might fuck around and put him immediately into a title shot. 
It might be some kind of interim title business. Might be like an actual, depending on who has the belt, depending on what the timing and the circumstances are, it is not at all unthinkable that as soon as he's back and healthy, the UFC puts him directly into a title shot. Well, if if Dustin Poirier is the lightweight champion, if Poirier beats Charles Oliveira and he is still the champion and hanging around waiting for something to do when Conor McGregor comes back, it would not surprise me in the slightest to see the UFC plug Conor McGregor straight into a title fight against Dustin Poirier. And you know Dustin Poirier is going to take it because he's already beat the guy in his mind twice and he thinks he's the better fighter and he thinks he can do it again and he thinks he's going to make a lot of money. So <laughs> that's that's all the math you need in the combat sports world right there. Yeah. Um, although, like, the, the question, can he realistically be champion again, I would say it may be, de- like, I can foresee a situation where if you put Conor McGregor into the right matchup at the right time and he's still dangerous in the first round, maybe he fucks around and catches somebody with a left hand and beats him. Yeah. And and maybe he is a champion again. Or maybe we come up with an interim belt or some shit for him to fight over. Like, I, it's not at all implausible to think that some way the UFC finds uh, a, a way to put gold around that guy's waist again. Or it's also not at all implausible that he goes off to try to chase big money boxing paydays and fights a YouTuber or something. Like, yeah. Also, shockingly possible. And like, to me, one of the things that at this point seems like a given is that even if Conor McGregor were to become UFC champion again, he either wouldn't hold it that long or like he would just, as you said, go off to do something else. And eventually, you know, he would get stripped of the title. So like when we talk about what the ceiling is for Conor McGregor at this point, I think you got to consider that as well. That he just doesn't seem like he is going to fight as consistently or, or frankly, keep up with the training and be good enough to like have a run with the title. So like, even if he were to win it, I just don't think he would, he would be a, a long-term champion. Oh, I mean, he's not defending titles, but he hadn't done that in his entire career. Why start now? That's right. You know? Next question this week comes to us from Dak Wasson, who writes, I have to go to a wedding this Saturday night, so I'm going to have to miss the Pacquiao fight. Oh, this is an MMA-specific podcast? I meant to say I'm going to have to miss that Brunson-Gastelum fight we are all excited about. That's still not the fight, but uh, I don't even know the bride and groom. One of them is my wife's coworker or something. I'm dreading this whole ordeal. My question, I'm thinking about going with a bolo tie, cowboy hat, Western theme to the wedding for no reason other than uh, that would make me excited to go as opposed to bummed for having to miss some good fights. Is this a wise approach or am I just going to look a fool? In my mind, the bolo tie has me styling like Springsteen on the cover of Tunnel of Love and there are are there potential blind spots I'm not recognizing. Any chance I just end up looking like a poser? A major chance considerable chance that you end up looking like a poser. I say you do it anyway, though. Yeah, I mean, I think regardless, you got to do it. Especially, like, is there a chance, Dak, that the bolo tie is one of those ones that has a little scorpion inside it? It's like a piece of glass with scorpion and a scorpion. If it's one of those, then you should wear it to every formal occasion, frankly. That's oddly specific of you to bring up, but I don't disagree with your conclusion. I also feel like... uh, you know, fortune favors the bold. And if you're you're trying to give yourself a little, you're trying to get yourself hyped a little bit for this wedding, go bolo tie, man. Yeah. Go I mean, bolo tie. It's, it's a conversation starter. Especially if you don't know anyone there, right? Then you just, you're just going to be the guy in the bolo tie. And that's, that's frankly pretty awesome. The only thing that's missing here is I need to kind of know a little bit of geographical information about where this wedding is. Uh, because... 
if you think like, oh, I'll be the clever guy showing up to a wedding in a bolo tie and that wedding happens to be in Montana, brother, you're just another asshole in a bolo tie. Yeah. You're not going to be the only one. You you're know? just going to be one of the few guys not wearing shorts <laughs> for that wedding. We, we've both been to some some weddings where there were, there were cargo shorts in the crowd and they were friends of ours. Yeah. Also, you might want to just briefly check in with your wife to be like, who are these people? What do they mean to yeah. you? Is it going to, is it going to hamper you in any way? If I'm the guy in the bolo tie at this wedding, if you get Let's the get green the- light. If you get the green light from your spouse, I'm, I'm all for it. We need to get on the same page before we roll into that thing. That is true. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Sean Diggity McIntosh, who writes, so another Ultimate Fighter season is coming to an end. Probably. I stuck it out for about six episodes, and let me tell you, it was not the least bit interesting. I thought a break from the show would give them a chance to rework the formula. <laughs> and make it feel fresh. <laughs> it did not. Did you guys watch any of the show at all, or do you simply have more respect for your time? <laughs> Thank you, gents. Yeah, I did not watch a moment of The Ultimate Fighter because I have been around the UFC for a long time, and I know that they will not, in fact, retool the formula, and they will not, in fact, make it fresh because uh, that's what they do, man. They're just going to keep cranking out the same shit over and over again because it makes them money. It's content. It's content, and that's what they do now. They crank out content. I watched the first episode just enough to answer for myself the question, is this uh, any sort of fresh idea or approach that we're going with here? And the answer was clearly no. It was the exact same show. And so I went, okay, I've seen it before. I'll go back to my regular attitude when it comes to Ultimate Fighter, which is tell me who matters at the end. And I'll catch back up on it enough for the finale. uh, And then time will tell if these are people that the MMA world is going to care about. So the the actual show and what we're doing is very paint by numbers at this point, And nobody seems to have any interest in messing with that formula. Yeah. It kind of feels to me also like at this point, it's not even like uh, uh, a real bolded line item on your resume. If you are the, an ultimate fighter champion yeah. in the UFC, like remember it used to be kind of a big deal, especially yeah. early on, like Forrest Griffin, uh, Diego Sanchez, Michael Bisping, all these guys who were like ultimate fighter champs. It would, that would be like a thing that would follow you through your career. You'd be like, Oh, this guy was a tough winner. And Oh, now he's the champion. He's the first tough winner to be the champion and all this stuff. Uh, now it's just like, I don't, nobody even talks about it. Like it's not even a thing yeah. that, that gets brought up and like, Every once in a while, it'll get mentioned on the broadcast, and I'll be like, oh, this guy won the Ultimate Fighter? Oh, okay, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from uh, Matthias Lutz Ramos on Patreon, who writes, hey, my dudes, maybe I missed something, but why didn't we get the awesome 20 bucks I never want to see again uh, last week? Because of you guys, I started betting at this on these random cards, and I'm much more invested. Yeah, yes, you are. Uh, also, <laughs> I found out I found it super funny when Chad described going at 10 a.m. to the bar to place his bets. Thanks. Uh, yeah, we put the... We took a pretty bad beat there a couple weekends yeah, ago when that hurt, uh, that hurt bad. I think neither of us correctly picked a single fight, either Not as part one. of a parlay or just a straight up bet. And so fight. we were like, you know what? Let's we'll go in with a little cooling off period here. We'll, we'll just uh, we'll let everybody simmer down a little bit, get our heads back on straight. And then uh, maybe we'll take another another run at it. I don't want you to think 20 bucks I never want to see again is gone forever. It's just uh, it's just taking a little rest, a little respite. First of all, nothing makes me feel like a negative influence in people's lives 
Like when you tell me, hey, I started betting on random MMA cards because of you guys. I want to go, no, I'm sorry. Don't do that. Don't look to us as role models. Uh, especially because look, look, look at where it got us. But I'd also feel like, you know what? I've taken some time off. I went back to the drawing board. I cleared my head. I'm ready to bring the old Ben folks back. Are you ready to get back on that horse, Chad? Yeah. Yeah, I suppose I am. I suppose okay. I am. Woo! Yeah! Right, Man, you're gonna you're gonna walk walk up in there into like the Magic Diamond Casino at 10 a.m. on like a Friday morning, and they're gonna be like, "Chad, we were worried about you. <laughs> we, we called all the treatment centers. <laughs> called all the jails. Nobody had you. All right, next we, question. We figured you were finally tied up in the back of a van somewhere. Next question this week comes to us from Kevin. Subject line: Smooth Jimmy's Lock of the Week. Well, okay. Dateline: Chad Mendez signs with BKFC. Bare knuckle BKFC in particular will complete will compete heavily with both MMA as well as boxing over the course of the next five years and will have a TV deal by the year 2028. That's a big lock. And then it just says, out! So, whoa, it's very declarative from Kevin there. Very uh, boisterous, demonstrative coming in, throwing down the gauntlet for BKFC and bare-knuckle fighting. Ben, are you buying this? Well, first of all, compete heavily with MMA and boxing that feels like a tough one to measure and to say, when is that actually the case? I don't. I mean, like, could we even say that Bellator competes heavily with the UFC? Kind of depends on your perspective on it, you know. Um, as far as having a TV deal by 2028, first of all, it's hard for me to believe that there will be human life on Earth by 2028 uh, some days. But I also think the direction that we're moving makes it so that. TV deals don't mean the same thing that they used to mean. Like, do we count if they have some sort of streaming deal with somebody on somebody else's streaming platform? That seems way more likely to me because I also still think like if you're looking at who is left in the TV deal space, they they might sure be looking to gobble up live sports property content. But BKFC, bare knuckle boxing, seems like one of those things that it might still be a little bit of a bridge too far for some of those established TV yeah. broadcasters. Yeah. I still think that's I still think that's a tough sell even even today to put uh bare knuckle fighting on your on your your over the over the air broadcast network whatever it may be. That's I think that's a rough one. But you know, maybe somebody somebody might be hard enough up, who knows. All right, we got a couple more here and then we're going to get out of here for this week. Let's do this one from Joshua, not MMA related, but have y'all heard the new season of the Mogul podcast? It's all about DJ Screw and it's awesome. Uh, I actually listened to the first season of Mogul a few years ago when it was about hip hop executive Lance Rivera, yeah. uh, and it was very good. It was super good. And then I list- I started listening a little bit to this season about DJ Screw and found it to also be very, very good. Like, it seemed like it's going to be a super good season. I just like kind of drifted away from it, but it is it is interesting and it is well done. So if anybody out there is looking for a uh, a hip hop centric podcast that is is well done and well made, you should check out Mogul. I think there are three seasons of it now and it's it's uh i would i would wager that it's good all the way through well okay as long as we're making podcast recommendations i'm gonna throw mine in here a tip for the well-rounded fight fan which we haven't done in a while podcast called stuff the british stole (laughs) and it is exactly what it sounds like (laughs) every episode zeroes in on some sort of item or like collection of items that 
in its back in its empire days of sailing around the world and warring and looting the British Empire brought back much of it now in the British Museum, which I've been to and which is an awesome museum to go to, but also like there's a lot of feelings while you're looking at it where you're going, this is amazing, but also wait, how do you have this? <laughs> uh, and this podcast uh, done, I believe, by an Australian guy, and it's just really well done for one thing. Like it's a very entertaining and well edited, like well put together podcast and everything. Um, but also it's just like fascinating stuff. And uh, at an interesting time where it seems like a lo- in a lot of ways, both like some of the, the the Brits themselves and everybody is sort of ready to have a reckoning about a lot of this stuff. Except for every once in a while, you do hear from people at the British Museum who are basically like, yeah, we, we thought about it and we've decided we're going to keep it because we have it. And uh, that's that's kind of the end of it as far as we're concerned. But stuff the British stole. I think there's only like five episodes, but they're all fascinating. My favorite part of the episode of Mogul that I listened to about DJ Screw was kind of about his his early days in the Houston hip hop underground scene. And uh, like he invented screwed and chopped music, as I'm sure a bunch of the people who are listening to this know, uh, kind of like the distinctive style of, of hip hop uh, that later became somewhat famous. Guys like Mike Jones and whatnot uh, from Houston. But like back in the olden times when uh, DJ Screw was first getting his start, he would do a thing where he would leave a shoebox somewhere in Houston. And if you knew where the shoebox was, you could go and you could put money in the shoebox, like $10 or whatever, with a list of songs that you wanted him to screw and chop and mix up for you on a mixtape. And then he would do it and he would send you the tape in the mail. In the U.S. mails? Yeah, that's amazing to me. That, like, that is amazing. You put your money in the shoebox, and a couple weeks later, you get a tape from DJ Screw that he just made for you. It's the only one in existence. It just comes to you in the mail, <laughs> and then you can drive around in your car and listen to it. Trade it with your friends. That's phenomenal. I love uh, it. All right. This is going to be the last one this week uh, from Jake, who writes, Do you believe it is possible that John Jones is currently suspended for steroid use? Dana White has said that John is definitely not fighting until 2022, and it seems like fight negotiations have ended. We also know that USADA is no longer announcing athlete suspensions. It makes sense to me. And then it says, this theory was stolen from someone on Reddit MMA. Now, we, we this is not the first time that someone has contacted us with this particular theory. And all I got to say is, Benjamin, may we all be so lucky in life to meet someone who loves us as much as MMA people love the idea of a conspiracy. Yeah. Like, man, we love just sitting around thinking of conspiracies to talk about. Uh, John Jones is not suspended for steroid use. I I mean, I understand what we're saying. Like that USADA has said that we're not announcing the stuff. Like at least it seems until like it's been fully adjudicated, right? Like that's, that was the change in their approach. I believe like, would it even be possible? Because that seems insane to me to think that somebody could actually be currently serving a suspension in secret. Yeah. Why would you do that? Why, if that if would seem to defeat the purpose of having your like this uh, really stringent drug testing program? It, part of it is deterrence, and uh, like when you pop somebody like a big star to let other people know that he's suspended. Also, like wouldn't you'd have to tell the state athletic commissions, right? Like that's that's part of the deal. I mean, if you were gonna, if let's say John Jones tested positive. If you were going to keep his suspension a secret, why have him serve it? Like, okay, yeah, 
<laughs> when you if, put it like that, okay, if, well, if, if it's going to be a secret, why does it have to exist at all? Yeah, like if you're the UFC and you're the only one who knows about it and you're going to pretend like it doesn't exist, why have the man sit out for this long? Like, especially when the Francis Ngannou fight is staring you right in the face, man. Like, in this instance, exactly what we think is happening is what's happening. John Jones is moving up to heavyweight. He wants to fight Francis Ngannou or somebody else, but he wants to get a lot of money for it, which is totally understandable as far as I'm concerned. And the UFC is extremely budget conscious right now. It wants to keep spending as low as it possibly can, and it wants to make those margins for uh, for WMEIMG Endeavor. And so it doesn't want to pay for that stuff. And that's where we are. That's what's happening. That's it. Yeah. That's the okay. story. <laughs> the depressing reality. Not as fun as the conspiracy theory yet again. That's going to do it for this week's Co-Made Event Podcast. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions, comments, concerns. Uh, we couldn't do the show without you. We love you all very much, all the little co-maniacs out there. Uh, we will be over on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash event all week. we got the Wednesday live chat, hashtag wild on Wednesday. We've got the wrap-up Charlie's Theron movie month on Thursday during the movie club. And then, of course, on Friday, we are back for the Power Hour, an entire additional 60 minutes of MMA talk from Ben Folks and yours truly every single week. So if you want to get down with that, go to patreon.com slash event. You can join at any one of three handy and easy patronage tiers. As for right now, though, thanks for listening. We're done. We're through. We're out. You know, Chad, this week I'm uh, painting the inside of my house, and there's one room... I'm still struggling to pick a color for. I want you to pick for me. I'm just going to give you the names. Marjoram. You're making this up. Is that real? Breezeway. Or Looking Glass. All right, what room is it? I'm not telling. So, I mean, how am I supposed to say what Pick a name. Pick a name, you son of a bitch. Breezeway. Is it a light blue? It sounds like it is done. Is, it, is, is Breezeway a light blue? You, I'll let you decide when you come over and right. check it out for yourself. Now I guess I gotta go over to your house. This is how I get you. <laughs>